thank you very much. Um, in terms of travel, I should say that I just got off a plane 48 hours ago from Georgia, so if I seem unduly absent-minded, uh, uh, you'll understand why. Uh, I very much appreciate the invitation to be here. Uh, I, uh, as a, I am a fellow of St. Anne's, but my responsibilities are 100% university. I just finished five years as head of the Department of Politics and International Relations. The college is, a, for me, a, a, a refuge, if you will, a quiet place to work. Um, the phone never rings. Um, I get a free lunch when I uh, am so inclined, and it's a place that I have many friends of long standing. Um, I've met many old members, and I've enjoyed that greatly. So when I'm asked to come out, as I was uh, for this meeting, to, to represent the college, I'm really happy to do so. It's sort of felt to my mind, A, it's a good thing, and B, it's reciprocity for their kindness to me. The topic for the day is intervention and the responsibility to protect. I will uh, roll on through in about 45 minutes. Um, and uh, then I will be happy to take whatever questions you might uh, come up with. The juxtaposition between intervention and human rights is, uh, has been at the center of my own work for about 25 years. I've written two little books on intervention and one uh, too long book on the responsibility to uh, protect. And uh, for this year and next, I'm spending half of each year in Georgia, a state which experienced Russian intervention in 2008, which was then followed by the dismemberment of uh, Georgia. Um, the Russians, why is that relevant? The Russians justified their invasion of Georgia in terms of uh, what they termed a threat of genocide within Georgia being perpetrated by the Georgian government. And much of what I do in Georgia involves unpicking the reasons for that intervention and the consequences of it. Now, leaving Georgia aside, uh, this is a hot topic today. It just gets hotter and hotter by the moment. Um, we are told that uh, British forces and uh, their NATO allies are in Libya or around Libya um, because we need to protect Libyan citizens against the Gaddafi regime. Uh, that's a positive example, perhaps. On the other hand, despite a need to protect Syrians and Bahrainis and Yemenis, who are equally threatened by their governments, we are not in these countries. Instead, we wag our finger uh, at the miscreant governments governing these states. Going a bit farther back in history, uh, you may remember how George W. Bush justified uh, the coalition intervention in Iraq. Uh, this was, it was a movable feast of justification. He started with Iraqi links to uh, Al-Qaeda as a justification that proved uh, groundless. He then moved on to the need to remove uh, Iraqi weapons of mass destruction. The problem there was that the UN could not find any. Um, and so he wound up with uh, a justification of action in terms of the need to protect Iraqi citizens against a brutal regime that was systematically abusing them. A little bit farther back, there were the Balkans cases. 
in Kosovo, for example, NATO went to war uh, to protect the good citizens of the Serbian province of Kosovo in the face of an ethnically motivated assault on their rights by their government, the government of Serbia. We then sliced Kosovo out of Serbia, and 10 years later, uh, most of us have recognized it as a sovereign state. So this is uh, a frequently encountered problem that I'm talking about. I'd like to start with definitions. I'm a typical academic. I can't get anywhere without a definition or two. By uh, intervention, I mean a use of military force by one state or group of states inside the territory of another state. And that use is with a view to affecting the domestic politics or policies of the target state. By responsibility to protect, I mean an obligation on the part of other states and their organizations to respond to massive and systematic violations of human rights occurring within a state. Now, those violations may result from one of three circumstances. The target state may be simply incapable of protecting its own citizens. That's the failed state model. A second would be that the target state might be unwilling to prevent violations of human rights against particular parts of its, of its population. And the third, of course, might be that the target state or its government is itself committing these massive and systematic violations of human rights. An example of the first, lack of capacity to protect, might be Somalia, um, 1992, when we went there and did that. Um, Bosnia was another example from the 1990s. An example of an unwilling state, a state that is unwilling to uh, prevent massive and systematic violation of human rights, um, oddly, uh, say Brazil is an interesting example in respect of indigenous peoples in the Amazon basin. These people's lands are being stolen by economic entrepreneurs to cut down and sell the wood or to grow soybeans or whatever. Uh, and the government, and this means displacing or killing the Indians. And the government, for years and years and years, just hasn't done very much about it. So they're unwilling to uh, prevent violation. And I'm sorry to say that the, the third type uh, a, a, the target of intervention, the state is itself committing the violations, that uh, provides us with an extremely long list. Um, because after all, in the 20th century, more people died as a result of attacks by their own governments than died in all of the wars of the 20th century. And you can see how you can get there if you, if you add up Stalin, it's about 30 million there. And then you throw in Mao Zedong at about 50 million, and you're already way ahead of what was caused by war. Uh, other examples would be um, Nigeria in respect of Biafra in the 1960s. Many of you may remember that, when one million people in the eastern region were deliberately starved to death as part of a secessionist war. 
Serbia in respect of Kosovo, Kosovo, or for that matter today, we are in Libya, presumably, or around Libya, in order, presumably, to protect civilians against the actions of the Libyan government. Okay. Um, now, a little bit of international relations theory, if I may. Traditionally, intervention has been seen as a bad thing, okay? Um, because uh, it has a ne arguably a negative effect on international order. If states spent all their time running around intervening in other states for whatever reason, there would be no such thing as international order. International order is weak enough already, and uh, if we went that, that route, there wouldn't be any at all. So really, the point of the last hundred years, I think, in this juxtaposition is that we may be seeing intervention in some circumstances, it may be coming to be seen as a good thing in that it may protect people in difficult situations. In other words, we are thinking seriously about liberal models of interventionism and implementing them in many cases. A little bit of history here. I think the place to start, uh, and I can anticipate the groans from you, the place to start is uh, the Thirty Years' War in, in Germany in the first part of the 17th century. Okay. Don't worry, this is going to be a summary account. It's a race through 400 years. Um, that war was, in essence, about an effort by the Habsburgs, Austria and Spain, to establish an effective hegemony in Europe. Okay. And the resistance to that effort to, if you will, recreate the empire on the part of major nation states like France and Sweden. And the field of play for them was Germany and also the Netherlands. That's where they fought it out. The key here was control of Germany, which was then fragmented into a mishmash of small states, semi-states, bishoprics, what electorates, and whatever, and so on. Um, and, uh, and the uh, point, as I said, was hegemony. The ideological justification for this was, of course, religion. It was all tied up with the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation and the struggle between Protestants and Catholics. The war involved repeated interventions. Um, as major powers supported their co-religionists in other states. It was deeply uh, chaotic and hugely damaging to the civilian population of Germany. Arguably, Germany didn't really recover again for 250 or 300 years. The outcome, enshrined more or less in the Peace of Westphalia, was the creation of the modern sovereign state system. Um, that system has been based on the norm of sovereignty. For our purposes, that means that all states are legally equal, that they are recognized as being legally equal, and that they have the exclusive right to manage their internal affairs, to manage their domestic jurisdiction. This had important implications for what we now call uh, uh, universal principles of human rights. States were the subjects of international law. People were not. Individual human beings were not. They were subjects of their countries and the laws of their countries. 
and it was the governments of those countries, not the so-called international community, that defined what their law was and what their citizens' rights were. If a particular state's treatment of human rights violated universal principles of human rights, too bad. It was not the business of outsiders to mess around inside the state in question. In other words, the acceptance of sovereignty in the European system, and later globally, um, was accompanied by a corollary principle, which was the principle of non-intervention in the domestic jurisdiction of other states, or as it was put at the time, cuius rex eus eus religio. Whoever is king, that's the religion, it's his, point, his business, not the business of outsiders. Now that system and these norms um, persisted more or less until the middle of the 20th century. So you can see with relief, I've just jumped 250 years, okay? If you look at the situation in 1900, there were no significant international agreements on human rights. There were no international human rights norms. There were no human rights treaties and no human rights conventions in the international system. A lot of bad things happened to people as a result. There was no international protection of individual rights in the face of often uh, rather nasty governments. But the principles of sovereignty and non-intervention did limit the use of force in international relations. And those principles, to my mind, laid the foundation uh, for uh, other principles of cooperation in the system. In this sense, many have argued that uh, these principles, sovereignty and non-intervention, were a fundamental underpinning of the limited international order that we grew to know between the 17th and the 20th centuries. Now, uh, that's the baseline. Things have changed. Things began to change, in particular, after World War II, uh, and as a result, by and large, of the Holocaust and the international response to massive abuse of civilians in that war. The mass killings of Jews and uh, Roma uh, starkly depicted the risks of having an excessive government taking out after parts of its own population. <clears throat> and the risks for the system as a whole, if the system, the international system, had absolutely nothing to say about the behavior, i.e. the commission of genocide within particular states by those states. So we got the Nuremberg trials. Um, and the Nuremberg trials were effectively the first nail in the coffin of a purely statist international system because they attributed legal responsibility in, uh, in international law to individual human beings for war crimes okay? um, and crimes against humanity. Leaving aside Nuremberg, a second thrust at this point in time was uh, the new United Nations, and uh, in particular, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights uh, of 1947. Um, but I, I, actually, I'm jumping ahead of myself. 
I should note that the UN Charter itself um, includes reference to the promotion of human rights as one of the purposes of the organization. Now, as I just mentioned, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, adopted, by the way, without opposition uh, in 1947, and that document outlined uh, for the membership of the UN as a whole, uh, in a general sense, the rights of men and women wherever they were and in whatever country they lived. <clears throat> in other words, individual rights were now internationally recognized rather than being products of domestic legislation and domestic judicial process. 20 years later, that Declaration on Human Rights was translated into weekly binding uh, legal commitments, the Covenant on Civil and Political Rights and the Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights. Europe was out ahead of the pack on inserting individual rights into international legal discourse. The European Convention on Human Rights transferred some degree of sovereignty over human rights issues from the member states of the Council of Europe to the European Court on Human Rights. And the final dimension of this beginning of change was the uh, development by the International Committee of the Red Cross, uh, the development of the laws of war through the Geneva Conventions and in again in response to the experience of World War II. The fourth Geneva Convention was adopted in 1949, and it clarified, in particular, the responsibility of warring states to protect the human rights and property of civilians affected by conflict. In 1977, uh, the parties to the Convention, for the most part, adopted what is known as the Second Protocol Additional to the Fourth Geneva Convention. Um, and that, uh, despite its rather, how, how should one put it, clumsy title, it was critically important because it extended the same human rights in wartime situations to civil war, war within the domestic jurisdiction of states. Um, now, that's, I suppose, possibly the good news, but there's also bad news during this period. There's a great paradox about the relationship between rights and intervention in the post-World War II period. And that is that uh, I mean, the expansion of consideration of the internationalization of human rights clearly created a potential for change in the norm of non-intervention. Because after all, you might have to protect those rights by going in and protecting them. Um, so, we have during this period an expansion of the potential for intervention resulting from this consideration of human rights. The paradox is that at the same time, the international community's intervention, uh, sorry, the, 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 the international community's prohibition of intervention was also going stronger, uh, growing stronger. Uh, those of you who know the United Nations Charter will know that Article 2.4 prohibits the threat or use of force against the territorial integrity or political independence of any state. Article 2.7 of the Charter 
asserts that nothing in the UN Charter gives the United Nations the right to intervene in the domestic affairs of member states, or to, uh, gives, gives the UN the right to require member states to bring domestic issues to the United Nations for settlement. Okay? So this is a prohibition in charter law on intervention. Now, even though that, I mean, that, I, I read that, that sounds like a pretty strong no on intervention, but it wasn't a strong enough no for the new post-colonial states who had basically been experiencing intervention continually for two or three hundred years. And so in 1970, the General Assembly uh, adopted by consensus a declaration, a specific declaration prohibiting uh, intervention, and that was repeated again in 1974. So that's the Cold War. Let's move to the post-Cold War, which is what we really, I suppose, want to talk about. The end of the Cold War changed a great number of things. It removed a major obstacle uh, to the further liberal development of international human rights principles. Um, it also removed the principal great power defender of non-intervention. In both cases, we're talking about the collapse of the USSR. Okay? It made consensus more possible than it was in the system. And finally, the end of the Cold War, as we all know, we've lived through the subsequent period, um, it unleashed a large number of really unpleasant civil conflicts. Um, not least those in the Balkans and the former Soviet Union, but also the disaster in Somalia and the war in Rwanda. In fact, in the post-Cold War period, civil war became the normal way in which force was used. Interstate war nearly disappeared after the Cold War. Now, these three changes, if you will, together encouraged reflection and change in practice concerning the international use of force to intervene within sovereign states on human rights grounds. In Somalia in 1992, the UN authorized a force to enter Somalia to ensure delivery of humanitarian action, as one example. In 1994, the Security Council uh, gave permission for a force to enter Haiti to overthrow its military dictator and to restore democratic rights and democratic rule. In 1994 and 1995, it authorized the United Nations force and other international partners, including NATO, to end Bosnia's civil war on human rights grounds. The UN also retroactively authorized uh, regional intervention in Li Liberia and Sierra Leone to end those countries' deeply inhumane civil conflicts. In each case, in all of these UN resolutions, violation of human rights was defined to be, in the situation in question, a threat to international peace and security. And the key point in the UN Charter is, if you say something is a threat to international peace and security, it, it uh, opens up Chapter 7 of the Charter, which is the UN uh, effectively use of force to, or uh, sanctions to stop what's going on. Um, now, all of these were specific cases, and as uh, um, any lawyer will tell you, particularly a lawyer who doesn't like the development, I suspect, he will tell you a few precedents doesn't make a principle. 
Um, well, at the end of the 1990s, the Security Council generalized from this accumulation of unique situations, which were therefore not precedents. It generalized to adopt two resolutions acknowledging in general that massive and systematic violations of human rights or systematic interference with humanitarian action in civil war might be seen by the Security Council as threats to international peace and security, and that, in turn, again, would unleash Chapter 7 and the use of force. In response to the genocide in Rwanda in 1994, meanwhile, the United Nations Secretary General, Kofi Annan, asked for a commission to study uh, and provide recommendations on the topic of humanitarian intervention, which was intervention inside a country for humanitarian purposes. And uh, this is where we got the phrase, the responsibility to protect. They figured responsibility, the commission figured that responsibility to protect was less controversial as a label than humanitarian intervention. Um, so the responsibility, the conclusion of that commission, uh, that there was a responsibility to protect, was uh, endorsed by the General Assembly in 2005. And if you read the resolution that mandates our actions in Libya and around Libya, this principle forms the normative basis for our intervention in that conflict. So it looks like the responsibility to protect is being codified and also applied in practice. I'd like to pause here and consider the potential implications for international order, and then I'm going to uh, get into a number of really annoying problems with this development, okay? What about international order? What does this evolution mean? Earlier, I suggested that the recognition of absolute sovereignty and the commitment to the principle of non-intervention were key foundations of the traditional order of the state system. Um, I also suggested, and you may wish to disagree, it's a free country, um, I also suggested that on the whole these principles worked rather well for a fairly long time. The insertion of human rights concerns, and if you want to get technical, the recognition of the subjectivity in international law of human individuals, um, the recognition of the responsibility to protect, for that matter, all of these raise questions about how we have traditionally done our business or ordered our business in international relations. In the first place, it appears that the, no, the, the meaning of sovereignty may be changing. I referred to it as absolute jurisdiction earlier over a finite territory before. Many people now argue that it, instead of sovereignty being absolute, um, it is conditional. Uh, that is to say, um, recognition of the state's sovereignty depends on the extent to which that state protects its citizens and their rights. It follow, where, where it does not do so, its sovereign rights are attenuated or reduced, if you will. 
It follows, of course, that the principle of non-intervention has been weakened, shifting from a simple no to a no in general, but with a large but. The but is that where a state does not perform in an acceptable manner on the protection of its citizens, the principle of non-intervention may not apply. That's a problem to my mind, but then I'm sort of a reactionary. We appear to be moving away from one understanding of order in the international system and towards another. The former system was, for better or worse, self-regulating. It was basically regulated by the balance of power. Um, the sec this new conceptualization of order requires an international framework to regulate it. So uh, who decides what the threshold for intervention is? Who authorizes interventionary actions? Who ensures, ensures the proportional use of force in intervention? Um, who legitimizes intervention? And who holds interveners accountable for what they're doing in this brave world? Accountable in terms of some universal standard of behavior. Now, it may be a good idea to move towards the sort of insertion of a responsibility to protect in the system, but these other questions haven't been properly answered. Um, those conditions are not in place. And uh, in the absence of a regulatory framework for the responsibility to protect, and I mean an effective regulatory framework, and we do have the United Nations, and we do have the International Court of Justice, and we do have the International Criminal Court, it's just that they are not sufficiently empowered to take care of this fundamental issue. In the absence of a framework, the risk is that the change in, in, in principles concerning sovereignty and intervention uh, generates a license for whoever wants to intervene and wherever they want to intervene. They will just say, oh, uh, I'm doing this to protect the rights of civilians. Um, the old system was designed imperfectly and uh, in part to uh, constrain the powerful by preserving the rights of less powerful states to go about their business unmolested. And that had its good side and it had its bad side, but we don't know whether this is any better because the system hasn't really matured. Several issues, uh, speaking of maturation, several issues arise from the record of the past two decades. First, uh, we, I, I come from Canada, you know, Canadians are wonderfully liberal uh, internationalists, uh, uh, people. Um, and so we love uh, human rights principles and so on and so forth. Um, however, there is no consensus on this evolution in the system as a whole. Not least because several key players don't like the notion of attenuation of sovereignty on grounds of a responsibility to protect. Uh, Russia and China come to mind. Um, think about Russia's war in Chechnya. 
which, which basically, to my mind, uh, uh, came very close if it did not cross the line of genocide against the Chechen people. Or uh, China and Xinjiang and Tibet. I mean, basically, their control of these regions is maintained by the systematic violation of the rights of ethnic minorities in those two regions. That's, okay. So um, one might expect that China and Russia would not be terribly uh, enthusiastic about embedding the qualification of sovereignty, which is implied by the responsibility to protect in the system as a whole. And uh, if you want a good measure of that resistance, you ask the simple question, how many times, uh, sorry, the Chechen War lasted from 1994 to 1996. It resumed in 1999 and is still sort of bubbling along. Uh, how many discussions of Chechnya have there been in the United Nations Security Council over that, uh, what, 15-year uh, period? Answer, zero. Not one word in the council. Um, so uh, if you think about this then um, in terms of the effect of the impact of, of uh, non-consensual uh, opinion, um, it means that uh, you know, Rwanda or Somalia or Serbia are okay subjects for application of the norm, but Russia and China aren't. Okay? Uh, and that is why, it, it, that is because there is literally no way anybody is going to go to Russia or to Xinjiang or to Tibet to sort out these things. And moreover, uh, the Russians and the Chinese would be upset at us if we questioned their behavior towards minorities. And we need them for other things like arms control agreements, like climate change, or whatever. Okay. Now, in turn, uh, now it's not just these two states not wanting us to talk about their internal human rights behavior. They can also block any consideration of the responsibility to protect being applied in respect of states where they have special interests. Why has there been no effective UN responsibility to protect uh, action in the case of Darfur, Sudan? That is because China owns a very solid portion of Sudan's oil production capacity, and they don't want to mess that up. Um, there is no, consider no serious consideration, to my mind, of intervention in Syria today, in part because of Syria's political connections to Russia. And the likelihood, and in fact the Russians have made it very clear, there will be no Libya too with respect to Syria. We will simply veto it. And China would stand by Russian fighting as they did veto. This is related to an obvious second problem, and that is selectivity of application of this human rights principle, the sovereignty, or the, the responsibility to protect. Now, the, I'm, I'm going to sound naive uh, for a moment, if I may. Um, if a norm, uh, a principle, is considered to be universal in, a, in application, then it should be consistently applied. Um, it isn't. Consistently applied. 
And the reason it isn't is it's not just about Russia, uh, Russian or Chinese, or for that matter, Indian or Brazilian, uh, nervousness about the effect on sovereignty. It's also uh, about us. We think, in general terms, that acceptance of a responsibility to protect civilians whose rights are being systematically violated is a good thing, unless it cuts across our interests or our cost-benefit analyses. Okay? Um, so uh, has Britain advocated intervention to and here I, I speak as a UK citizen, by the way, so I'm allowed to uh, ask this question. All right. Um, uh, has Britain advocated intervention in Bahrain or Yemen officially? Answer: No. Uh, nor has the United States. Well, in the first instance, we have significant economic interests in the Persian Gulf. The uh, United States has significant economic and military interests in the Gulf, at least because they're Persian Gulf fleet is based in Bahrain, of all places. So um, in other words, where other important issues are at stake, we, too, select against the responsibility to protect. Now, there's a second kind of negative selectivity here. Um, our interests might uh, uh, be served by a protective intervention. Um, and so we might do it on human protection grounds, but the costs may be too high, and so we apply a cost-benefit analysis. What's the difference between Libya and Syria? The difference in terms of cost-benefit analysis for us is that Syria has a serious functioning military, uh, which is quite cohesive, well-trained combat, hardened um, and Libya didn't. So Libya was easier. Um, well, although, frankly, as we move into whatever month we've moved into in Libya, it's not looking quite so straightforward as it did at the outset. Um, so uh, now, of course, we all apply norms uh, selectively. But uh, as I said, if you, if you believe that the responsibility to protect is universally applicable, um, uh, you ought to behave consistently. Moreover, if you don't, you're not going to get the broad support from the international community necessary to truly embed this principle. Okay? Um, to make it universal, we need universal buy-in buy to the principle. Um, buy-in depends in part on others seeing the principle to be legitimate. And when we apply it selectively and in a manner that tracks our interests, the challenge of legitimizing the principle becomes more difficult. And that explains why many states in the third world just think that oh, this, is just, this is a load of rubbish, what you're really doing is developing a justification for neo-imperialism. Um, so we're having trouble with that. And this is linked to a third issue. Uh, and I'm just about done. You'll be pleased to note. Um, it's a form of positive selectivity now. It's instrumentalization of norms or principles. 
where our interests might be served through intervention, where we might want to intervene for self-interested reasons. And if there's a general prohibition on intervention existing, well, we could always embrace the responsibility to protect as a justification for overriding the general principle. And that is, of course, exactly what Russia did uh, when it invaded Georgia. Um, it basically said they were uh, defending the poor minority of South Ossetia against the threat of genocide. What they really wanted to do was basically, the, the point of that war was twofold. In one they succeeded, and in the other they failed. The one in which they succeeded was telling NATO that there would be no membership for states in the Caucasian region, or for that matter, no new members in the former Soviet region, and if anybody tried, they would get whacked. Okay? We got that message, we got it. Uh, the second one was they wanted to get rid of the president of Georgia, and that was a miscalculation. He is still there and doing ever better. Um, and I also mentioned the, the instrument, instrumentalization of human rights principles by the United States in Iraq in 2003. And by the way, not to forget our current one, Libya, um, I don't really have a, a, a view on this, but there are people out there, serious people out there, who say that one reason we went to Libya was self-interested. We figured if we didn't go to Libya, uh, Libya's population would come here. In other words, it was about uh, controlling uh, migration. Um, so, my fourth point is effectiveness um, of these uh, interventions on responsibility to protect grounds. We've just seen, by the way, that this gets to ethics of uh, motive and ethics of consequence, okay, for those of you who read moral philosophy. Um, uh, we've just seen that the motives underlying human rights-based intervention may not be pure because they may be polluted by material interest or political interest or military interest. But there's also an ethic of consequences. You know, even if motives are not pure, if the consequences are morally defensible, then some people would argue, it's okay anyway. I, I think I probably would too. Um, if, even if we go somewhere for other reasons, if an action actually saves lives, and restores communities and allows people to live their lives more or less normally, that's probably okay. However, uh, intervention may not produce these positive consequences. Um, indeed, it may make things a lot worse for the very people we're trying to help. Um, external action in civil wars tends to be half-hearted and comparatively short-lived. Um, and uh, it may also be disproportionate with regards to the amount of force used, indiscriminate with regard to civilian targeting, and it may kill many people that the operation was intended to save. Uh, and that is not least because the intrusion may generate popular resistance to imperialism intervention, and that may make the military task more uh, severe. Iraq and Afghanistan come to mind on both points. Um, if you basically take a stick and push a stick in the hole of a hornet's nest, you tend to get stung. Uh, I know. I did that once. Um, 
That was in my youth. Um, intervention may also delegitimize those locals who cooperate with it. You know, one reason that Karzai has so much problems in coping with the local politics of Afghanistan is because he's associated with us, and they see him as a stooge. And so our support for Karzai increases support for the Taliban. And that intensifies the conflict. Yeah. All of this, uh, I'm sorry, it reminds me of that famous or infamous comment by, uh, it was, I think, Curtis LeMay, who was, during the Vietnam War, chief of staff of the United States uh, Air Force, who, uh, in respect of uh, America's intervention in Vietnam's civil war, said, we had to destroy the country to save it. Um, now, even if you can manage the security aspects of intervention, the business of creating responsible, rights-respecting states out of the chaos and murder of civil conflict is a very complex business. We don't do it very well. We've been doing that in Bosnia-Herzegovina since 1995, the total bill is now, I think, around 12 billion euros. Uh, and we are no closer to the establishment of a viable state now than we were in 1995. There is no universally valid template for creating uh, stable, effective, legitimate states. Um, there is no reliable template for reconciling populations that have been in deep conflict, that have been in each other's thoughts. Now, in this context, if there's no guarantee that we shall do more moral good than harm through intervention on rights grounds, the question is, should we go there? Should we do it? And if we don't really know what we're doing, frankly, uh, should we be requiring our citizens to go and die for whatever it is we think that we're doing? Afghanistan, I'm sorry to say, comes to mind again. I guess I would conclude uh, as follows. Um, I believe in universal human rights, as a good Canadian liberal, and not least the right to life, the right to be allowed to live. I think the questioning of absolute sovereignty that we've seen is a good thing with respect to the really nasty behavior of many states towards their own citizens over the past century. I've got that too. That implies questioning the principle of non-intervention. I accept that. I also think that the principles of sovereignty and non-intervention have served the international system well. I need to be convinced that we have robust alternative principles these before we go too far down the road we're going down. And I need more evidence that we can actually do the job of intervening properly, the job we wish to do in very difficult and painful circumstances. And I also know that states have a habit of manipulating principles for their own purposes that those uh, purposes and the actions that come from those purposes may undermine the very principles we're trying to establish. So we're a long way from where we were on uh, sovereignty, intervention, and rights. We started with the Peace of Westphalia and went through 1900 and up to World War II and then beyond. The place we are is probably a better place than we were in 
And the direction of travel that I've been talking about is probably positive. On the other hand, the trip we're on raises a huge number of very difficult problems. And this is very much work in progress. Thank you very much.